Welcome to the Watch a Revolution show, a show for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corporal. What's good, revolutionaries? I hope all is well. Even though we have been mired in weeks and months of COVID and about six weeks of unrest, people are <laughs> being revolutionary. That's what I want to say. They are finding their ways to express their voices in so many ways. And I put on my Instagram page on at What's Revolution is that there are so many revolutions needed right now. And I ask people, what's yours? And even though the protesters have been in the street for the last seven to eight weeks, there are people that are fighting for justice, for equality, for equity in hospitals, in schools, in criminal justice systems. All across this country, we have begun an upheaval because we are tired. We are tired. And many people for the last couple of weeks and for the last couple of months and for the last couple of years have been saying that I cannot breathe. I can't breathe. Not only literally, but proverbially, we cannot breathe because we have been strangled by the injustices that have happened legislatively, institutionally, and we are tired. And so we are seeing an upheaval. We are seeing an uprising, a peaceful uprising. Don't let the media fool you. We are peaceful. We are about change. And we want to make sure that we understand that we are coming and that there will be a reckoning for those that for those that have lost their lives, not just in 2020, not just because of George Floyd, but for the centuries of lynchings and deaths that have happened in our communities, we are coming and there's going to be a reckoning. Please wake up people and know that we love you, that we are here with you, and that we hope that we can help you answer what we think here is the most thought-provoking question of your life. What's your revolution? And I'm so fortunate every day to think about this question, to help people along, to think about the upheaval in their lives, to think about the upheaval in their communities and how they're trying to change them peacefully and righteously, to bring about livable communities and livable wage jobs to people. That's the revolution that we're talking about, people, not what the media is trying to tell you. We are trying to create an opportunity for our children to live, to create, as my man Martin Ekachufu says, to create generational wealth. That's what we're doing. And that is our upheaval. And so I'm happy. I am always happy to have the most amazing guest on my show. And I am fortunate that in my travels, in my certain stops, that I get to meet amazing, amazing scholars, amazing authors, that who in turn become amazing friends and brothers. And so today I welcome my brother, my friend, my scholar in arms, Dr. Christian Bolden, Associate Professor of Criminology and Justice at Loyola University. Welcome to the What's Your Revolution show, Dr. Bolden. Dr. Corpio, thank you for having me on. <laughs> uh, no worries, brother. It is exciting. As I said to you as we talked in the green room, I have been waiting for this interview for so long. I remember, and hopefully you do, as we set out at a cookout at one of our many gatherings. I want to say it was at probably, maybe it was Ash, Ashley's house or it was at one, someone's house. And we were talking about the writing, right? This impending book of yours, the idea, like this idea that you wanted to have come out so people could hear your story. 
And as of August 14th, it will come out publicly. And as you said, in the green room, many people have the book in their hand. The book is called Out of the Red, correct? Correct. Out of the Red. And we'll get into that story. But congratulations to you, Dr. Bolden, on taking that idea and bringing it to fruition. We congratulate you here at Western Revolution. And so I know that is a big achievement for you. How are you feeling about publishing your first book? Well, first, thank you. And uh, how am I feeling? I have all sorts of feelings. <laughs> One is cathartic that it's that it's out. The other is, you know, a little strange because I'm I'm putting my life out there for others to see and judge and, you know, form their own opinions about. And in doing that, you know, there's a lot of vulnerability mm-hmm. and I don't hold anything back. So it's, it's a strange feeling. I understand that, you know, and I, I love when that, when that V word comes up on the show, vulnerability and knowing you the way that I do, Dr. Bolt, I'm gonna start calling you Christian in a moment, <laughs> is that you're probably one of the most, you know, grounded, vulnerable people that I know, you know, in our conversations over the years since we first met, you know, I, I, there's a level of calm and respect that you have for the world and the willingness to tell your story. Unlike many of us who, who have struggled with that, telling our stories uh, in a manner uh, that is going to elicit respect and openness. And so I am tremendously grateful for you. Dr. Bonner, you talked about, you know, in your revolution, this ending of mass incarceration and education and giving people second chances. That's an amazing thing because when we think about people who are incarcerated, we think about people who go to jail. We often put them in as second-class citizens, as if that was the worst thing that they ever did in their lives. And we hold them accountable for the worst thing that they did in their lives. But oftentimes people make mistakes and people want to live better lives. They don't want to be judged by the worst mistake of their life. And so it's interesting that you say that you've made that your revolution, second chances. And too often as black men, and interestingly enough, if you are to see Dr. Bolden, phenotypically, he does not look like a black man. And I remember when we first met, I was like, who's this Latinx dude? (laughs) (laughs) And then we started started talking and having this conversation. And he was like, Charles, you know, I'm a black man, right? I was like, wait. And so we just started talking about his heritage and, and his lineage. And so I bring this back to this conversation of as black men, we don't get second chances, do we, Christian? You know? Oh, no. Very, very rarely. It's an extreme problem with this society. Second chances aren't, aren't even considered for most. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so that leads us into <laughs> your revolution. It leads us into your book, Out of the Red, because your book is about second chances. And I want to make sure that we get this out very early, right? The book comes out on August 14th. Where can, where else other than Amazon can they pick up the book? You can pick up a book through Rutgers University Press, which is the publisher, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Kindle. You can get it in any of those venues. Gotcha. Uh, I want you to make sure, revolutionaries, that you go out and check out this amazing book, Out of the Red by Dr. Christian Bolden. But look, you talk about this in in, in as much detail as you can, and we want to make sure people go out and buy the book and listen. But your book is about second chances. It is about things that have happened in your life, the very interesting and detailed story of your own second chance. Talk about that for a second. About my own second chance? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we have to back up before we get there. Go ahead. Tell me the story. I like that. So... 
I, I need a, a qualifier about what kind of book this is. So I'm an academic, but most people don't like to read academic books, right? So this book is a narrative that weaves academic literature through it, right? So it's really a story for anyone and it kind of tricks you into learning about it, mm. right? And it takes my whole life from five years old and how I ended up um, through going through all these things, bullying, school, school disciplinary procedures such as zero tolerance and things like that, that resulted in me joining a gang. And looking at the societal aspects of what was going on, what was pushing all these kids into gangs at that era, which was the, the 1990s. It results in me being incarcerated as an adult in the Texas prison system at age 17. And for most people in that situation, that would be it, right? Their, their lives would really be over. They'd be written off. And through a series of, of very strange and fortunate events, somehow I was able to overcome that to become who I am now. And this is what the story is about. And that in itself, you know, leads me to ask this question. You know, we think about Texas growing up in the 1990s and the prison boom. And we think about mass incarceration. You know, what was Texas like, you know, growing up, you know, when it came to criminal justice and when it came to being a young black man living in Texas, in San Antonio, if I'm correct. Right. Tell us a little bit about that, just from that that backdrop of the criminal justice system and Texas, and also, if you can weave into that, being a gang member. <laughs> okay. So mass incarceration, you know, people know this term, right? But a lot of people don't know the detail behind that term. Texas was at the forefront of mass incarceration. So people know Texas is a, is a big place in a simple illustration. 1989, there were 30 prisons in Texas. Wow. All right. That's all. You, you whistled. That's a yeah. lot, right? Wow. Exactly. So in eight years, 1989 to 1997, guess how many more prisons Texas built? 30 more. 80 more. What? 80 more prisons. 110 prisons. They built 25 prisons in a single year. That is ridiculous. Mass and incarceration. Mass incarceration. And they filled those prisons. So you think about that. They filled those prisons very fast. That's a lot of people. And as you probably already know, you can guess the skin tone oh, yes. of the majority of those people. Right. Yeah. Uh, black and brown folks. I exactly. So what you're telling me is that 110 prisons in one state. In one state. In one state. And so my thought is, is that they weren't just housing Texans, right? They were, they were bringing people from all over the country, correct? Not so much. <laughs> Not so much. It was mostly Texas. There was a few. And let me be clear, I'm only talking about the state prisons, not any federal prisons that were there, because, of course, they would bring people from other places. Right, exactly. There were, there were a few states that leased out their prisoners, but for the most part, they were mostly Texans. Wow. That's troubling that there are 110 state prisons in a state. And, but interesting that we also, le we, we currently live in Louisiana, which is the, still the incarceration capital of the world, which is very interesting to me as well, that Texas had so many prisons. And so as, as that, that backdrop, right, as a young man growing up in San Antonio, 
right? Understanding that at any point in term, by just being a black or brown man, right, you may be incarcerated, but you chose a you chose a life, right, that may have propagated or proliferated the entrance into, you know, the criminal justice system. That in itself is interesting. Your thoughts on that, right? The, and, and the choices, because people often ask that question, well, why would you join a gang? Knowing that most often you're going to end up either dead or in jail. Okay. So let me unpack that. I mean, it's a good question. It's not a fair question though, because, so I joined a gang, I was 14 years old. So my cognition at that point is not, you know, adult cognition, right? There you I, go. There you go. There's not a whole lot of a forethought, but I don't want to spoil the the book. Exactly, exactly. We don't want to spoil the book. There's a lot of detail in there, and I would make the argument that a lot of it had more to do with society rejecting me in the first place, rather than me choosing to go this this other route. Namely, the, the the school to prison pipeline. I mean, the school disciplinary procedures. One mistake, they were kicking kids out of school, especially black and brown kids. And kicked out of school, it leaves you nothing else but the streets. I mean, what what do you expect to happen to kids in these situations? I mean, historically, before the era of mass incarceration, schools had this, this or operated according to this concept, parents, patre, they're supposed to be the, the parent or disciplinarian. But they gave that up. They simply said, we don't want to deal with anything anymore. And they just kicked kids out of school. Right. Which is troubling, you know, and, you know, we're seeing this reformation in education or ed reform, as we call it uh, by its short abbreviated name. And there has been lengthy research on the school to prison pipeline. There was some research I did when I was a professor that, you know, in some instances that one suspension could lead to the interest into the criminal justice system and lead to incarceration. One suspension. And the work that I've done around the country, and I want to thank my good friend, Dr. Aaron Spencer, Virginia Beach, who really was the catalyst for me getting into the work and working with our young boys, is the suspension rates that we saw around the country that were so high for brothers that looked just like you and me. And that's interesting. And that's that's why I, I really wanted to pull that out. And I love that you said, right? You, you think about the zero tolerance policies, right? You, you think about the legislative policies or the criminal justice policies that went along with the school discipline policies that would move this pipeline up. So you mess up in school, you're on the street, right? There's no educational, right? We're, we're talking about right now about defunding the police and people are so scared. Oh my God, you're going to defund the police. We're saying put more money into education and resources for our communities, right? right? Why does the police budget have to be more than the education budget, right? right? You know, that's what we mean by defund the police is let's make the funding equitable. And so, you know, based on this, Dr. Bolden, what I think I heard you say is that society rejected you as a black man. And so in turn, where was the family? Where was the cohesion? Where was the, the someone to say, you know, or some group to say, this is your home. This is where you can, we can educate you. Is that what I heard? Yes, that's what you heard. You know, and so that's too often, you know, and what I also need to say about Dr. Bowden is that he is the foremost authority on gangs in the country. And so, we, we, you know, as we, as we tell his story, as you listen, as you go and Google Dr. Kristen Bolden, you will see all the amazing work that he's done for the last decade or so writing literature about 
working with gangs and the experiences of gang members and the stories that are behind that. And so I appreciate that. You know, as we as we move into this conversation, you're a young 17-year-old boy. You're in jail. And again, we don't want to spoil the fabric of the book, but what's the psyche of a, a young man in, in incarcerated? Terrified. <laughs> Terrified to begin with and completely defeated. You know, there doesn't seem to be any hope. I remember looking up and seeing around me nothing but kids, 17, 18, 19-year-old, mainly black and brown kids. That's And they had sentences that made sure they were never going to see the light again. They had just thrown away a whole generation. You know, I, I pause because I, I, I think about, you know, the brothers that I went to school with, you know, some of them who are still incarcerated 30 years later for oftentimes non, non-lethal atrocities and just were put away and without the ability to get, as we talked about early in the show, that second chance and being terrified as a young man. And when you're in car, you're behind bars. You know, I hate to be enclosed in a plane. And I know that sounds, that's privilege right there, right? I hate to be enclosed for a plane, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a plane for a period of time. I was coming home the other day from Durham and I was like, I really want to get off this plane. And then I thought to myself, what if you were incarcerated? What if you were behind bars? How would you, you, you cannot go anywhere. Your life is totally controlled. You know, as a 17-year-old boy, you're thinking, what the hell? What the hell? I'm incarcerated. You know, as, as I'm sure that you will speak so eloquently in your book, you're terrified, but figured out a way out. What were the forces? What were the, you know, the motivation to say, I want to shift my life. I want to fi- figure out some way out and to make a difference in my life. Because, I, And the reason why I ask you that, because there's somebody who's going to hear this show. Right. There's somebody who's incarcerated. They may listen to the show and they're going to hear this. What do you say to them? Right. As a 17 year old, 18 year old, 19 year old, 20 year old who's incarcerated right now, but may see the opportunity for a second chance. So the first thing I want to say is, despite all the odds, nothing is impossible. And And I'm proof of that. Nothing is impossible. The the things that really drove me, I mentioned how one day I just looked up and really realized that the people around me were either kids or they were people in their 40s and 50s who had come back to the penitentiary four or five or six times. Mm -hmm. And I just recognized that, you know, this situation, this is what my life would be. And I just made that determination that it wasn't going to be that way. There was a, uh, I I won't say a class, there was this thing that I was taking, this group I was going to. And the person who was teaching it told me something that struck a a nerve with me. And he just drew this little chart that was supposed to represent society and pointed at the very bottom of this hill and saying, this is where we are. We're at the bottom of the heap. Nobody cares about us. Nobody likes us. Nobody believes in us. Nobody will believe us. And he said, honestly, you can't be normal anymore. Like you, you have dreams to be normal but nobody's going to allow you to be that way. So you have to be exceptional. You have to do things that really, you know, leave you above above reproach. And I had to do that. And it wasn't easy. Uh, I had to, to formulate a plan to be exceptional. 
And the primary method for that was becoming educated. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you think that at this point in time in your life, you're a very well educated man. And to think that at some point in your life, you were a 17 year old young boy incarcerated. And now 41, 42, 42, 42, that you are an associate professor, right? At one of the preeminent universities in the country. You have just published your book out, out of the red, and you're one of the foremost authorities on gangs in the country, working with, you know, some of our largest federal agencies in the country, helping them to understand the backdrops of gangs and gang membership. And so that is a very interesting story. As you were talking, I wanted to know, you know, I wanted you to illuminate to me that day walking out, that that day that you walked out of jail, that last day. Can you do you remember it? I remember. I remember, but I have a caveat. Yeah. The last day I walked out of prison was not the last day of being in prison. Ooh. Do tell, Dr. Bolton. So I spent five years incarcerated and then three more years on parole. Most of that with an electronic monitor on. Gotcha. And the idea that I was free would be completely false. And I go into great detail about all the the pitfalls that are set up for people to purposely fail. It's almost as if they really want you to purposely Mm -hmm. fail or make it impossible for you to actually complete parole. So it, it wasn't freedom at all. It, was very, very difficult. Right, right. Well, I'm going to employ my listeners to my revolutionaries to go out when it does come out on August the 14th, to go out and buy Out for the Red by Dr. Christian Bolden, my friend, my brother, my colleague, you know, who has done and continues to do amazing things in this world. Christian, I want to shift our conversation away from your book um, because I don't want to spoil. I don't want to spoil as much because I want people, you know, I want people to go out and sit and read and to understand your story. And so I think that we've given them a great backdrop. One of the things that I admire about you as I follow you on your social media feeds is that along with second chances of your educational realm, you are now married to the one of the most amazing women that I know, Dr. Shauna Ray Taylor. And you can tell it, <laughs> you can tell it that I called her Shauna Ray, but Shauna, Ray, Dr. Ray Taylor, who by herself is, is a juggernaut, um, is a juggernaut as a scholar and an administrator and, and as an activist. And so, and also one of my good friends. But part of this is your ability to be a great partner and an amazing father. And so as we talk about this theme of second chances for you, what is that like to now be in a wonderful partnership and to be a father and to impart your wisdom into your son, Julian? It's amazing. I mean, I'm glad you asked that for multiple reasons, because one, it was something that I never believed I would have. Mm. And being able to have that is is more than I could have even imagined. I honestly never wanted children and had no idea. And when I had my son, there's nothing I would want more. Mm, you know, yeah. he's just my life. He's amazing. He teaches me things, um, even though he's not even two. <laughs> he's so smart already. But you no. Know, but more, more to your question. I think part of 
you know, the having the second chance is a having people who are willing to listen to a story and forgive and be understanding. But on my side of things, it's also being able to tell that truth, to be able to be completely vulnerable about all the things that I went through, all the scars that it left, you know, all the areas that I need help and healing and not, you know, trying to be like our parents were before being very stoic and, you know, I don't need any, anybody's help. No, we, we do need it. We do need this communication. We do need this understanding. And I think that's what helps make the family relationship successful. Right, right. You know, Kristen, what I see with good partnerships, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, is that, you know, waking up black and male every day and having to put our armor on in the world. And as my good friend, Don Francis said, you know, a good partner helps us bring the full brigade of ourselves out to the world. What does Ray bring to you, right, that allows you to go out into the world and be the best version of yourself? Well, she's a role model just all around, right? She, like you said, she's she's a force on her own because she is very kind and very caring, but very witty. And also, I mean, she can handle business when it's time to handle business. She goes against, goes up against abusers and court and things like that. And that's, that's scary. You know, that is, that's pretty intense. You know, people who have murdered their wives or things like that, you know, and and she faces off against them. And she really shows me that courage isn't necessarily this thing where you have to be, you know, just, just this hardened person, right? You can also find courage through kindness. You know, that's interesting. You can find courage through kindness. Those things that, you know, courage and kindness often are not associated with masculinity. You know, when I say that, they are not usually used in the the same, men should be courageous. Kindness is not a part of that sentence, right? Right. But what a good partner brings to the table and allows you to do is to, to find the courage to go out and write a book about your life, right? About your your, your your status and your state and the former states and your former status and present it to the world and say, baby, I've got your back. I'm here with you. Because what I heard in the beginning, Dr. Bolden, was a, a little bit of like, I just put myself out to the world. And, you know, I'm being, I, I just told my story. And now millions of people, right? Millions of people are going to read and hear my story. And they're going to be able to pick me apart. Right. Right. And that's all that that's often scary and frightening for us as as men of color because we get picked apart every day. But now I just put my story out to the world and now the whole wait a minute, wait a minute, Dr. Bolden, he was a gangbanger, right? And I'm not gonna tell you the rest of the story, but he was a gangbanger. Right. <laughs> you know, not not Dr. Christian Bolden that I took my criminology class from. That dude, this mild mannered, loving, big smile, he was a gangbanger. What the but then you get to go home, right? And you open that door. I'm trying to paint the picture for everybody. You open the door and that beautiful silver-haired woman, because you put a post up yesterday about her silver <laughs> hair, right? And your blonde, curly-haired son, Julian, and your daughter, and forgive me, tell me her name again. Macy. Macy, exactly. And you come home and life is a little bit easier because you have that partnership and that family to love you and to give you that strength, courage, and as you said, kindness. And that is one thing that if you know Dr. Bolden, you will know he is one of the most 
kind men that you will ever meet. And I've always been grateful for the kindness <laughs> that you have shown me. It is interesting because in our world right now, Christian, it's really, really hard to be kind. It's really, it, it's really, <laughs> really hard to be kind. You know, each and every day, my my Yahoo or my Twitter feed or what's going on the TV, I'm seeing another atrocity against a person of color. And so my critic is going to say, well, Charles, you know, there are people, there are things that are happening to our white brothers and sisters. There are things that are happening to cops. Yes, they are. And you know what? We're up in arms about that, too. Right. We're just asking you to be up in arms when stuff happens to us. Right. Right. That's what we'll be at. That's what we're asking for. People will say, Charles, police get killed all the time. Exactly. You know what? I'm praying for the families and I'm hoping that the perpetrator gets caught. That's what I'm praying for. But I'm also praying for my people when injustices happen and nothing happens as a consequence. That's my problem. So it becomes a little hard, Dr. Bolden, to be kind. How are you holding up and handling this time in, in the wake of our brother George Floyd being murdered and all of the atrocities that have happened over the last decade, over the last century, over the last centuries? How are you working through this? And how are you teaching your son? So I'm glad you asked that because I think, you, A, you you kind of answered or, or backed up what I said about how it's hard to be kind. That makes it courageous, mm. right? When you find it so difficult to do that. So me personally, the things that I've seen, the things that, that I've gone through, and that's a lot, not to spoil anything, but being a witness to brutal violence, being a part of violence in experiencing violence, right? There's lots of reason to be angry, to hate, but that only destroyed me. It only destroyed me. It never built anything. Now, anger is a natural human emotion, but it's how we channel it that, that really matters, right? And we have a lot of reason to be angry, but something you probably have seen as, you know, uh, in psychology, when you respond to people with anger, they tend to respond back with anger. Yes, they do. And, you know, there, there's a lot of biblical stories or other morality texts that tell you these things. You know, kindness is actually like pouring, you know, hot coal over someone. It, it's They kind of don't know how to respond, how to deal with that, because this is not what they're expecting, right? They're expecting your anger, your rage, and they know how to respond with anger and rage. Yes, right? yes, they do. Now, this doesn't mean we let things slide. Kindness doesn't mean that at all. But how we approach things, just like you said, we're not out to, to get people or tear down things where, except for systems that keep people oppressed. We want to change things for the better. And that's kindness, right? That's, that's kindness. kindness. Because is, that's what we but, want. Right. Kindness. Kindness. That's that's what we want. We we want people to find it in their hearts, right? To uh, allow all of us to thrive. Absolutely. What's, the, what's so hard with that? Why why does the color of my skin, right, promote you to find unkind words, unkind actions, unkind thoughts, unkind laws, unkind legislation that hinders my ability, hinders our ability to just wake up and be happy to thrive. I think the reason why people have such a hard time with that is we've been 
a culture that focused way too much on individual gain, individual gain to the extent that everybody else is the other. If they're not me or mine, they're the other and they don't matter. And people have been operating like that for a very long time. One of the reasons I wrote the book the way I did is I can give you all the data, right, about you know racial disparities and things like that, but the numbers don't mean anything to people. Personal stories that they can connect with is what means something to people. And so we just need to rehumanize everyone. Stop mm. seeing everybody else as the other. Right, right. The push on that, Dr. Bowden, well, I, I don't want to say I'm not pushing you, right? But the push on it is like when, when somebody says to me, well, I'm colorblind, right? I don't see color, right? It, it's okay, right? I don't see color. You're just you're just a human to me. What's what's the problem with that statement? Oh, there's there's plenty of problems, <laughs> as you know, right? Because that's not reality, right? Maybe they want it to be that way, but that's not reality, right? There, there's been tons of studies that you know suggest this, but I, I'll tell you just anecdotally and, and related to the things that are going on now. I used to teach at this university, IUP, in rural Pennsylvania. And there they had a little police academy. And so we would take students and other people through this academy. And they always had these training sessions where you're like in a bank robbery and it's a simulation, you know. In every case, well over 90% of the people, they would always shoot innocent Black people. Mm. They would always do it because all of the stereotypes through the media and things like that really work subconsciously. And people talk about how police have to ask, act in split-second decisions. Well, if their subconscious is already tell them, telling them that this person is dangerous and this person is an enemy, then that's, that split-second decision is going to be to pull the trigger. Right, right. And so we've developed this, this, this culture of, of implicit bias that people are fed over and over subconsciously. So they can say all they want, you know, that they're colorblind. but really. Those messages have been inculcated into them over and over again without them knowing it. Over and over and over again. You know, if I say the name Willie Horton, for those of us who grew grew up in that time, yeah. Willie George Bush and Willie Horton, right? How do we scare how do we scare the American public? Willie Horton. Mm-hmm. It, won, it, it won him the election, Willie Horton. And those images of the nefarious you know, black and Latin ex male, you know, and how he's coming to terrorize your home and rape and pillage your daughters. You know, that, that, that archetype, that stereotype has been, it has nullified. <laughs> That's the word that I want to use. It has nullified our lives for too long. And as you and I know, both know, even in the, uh, even in academia, we still have to fight that narrative. We still still have to fight that narrative. I remember sitting in the College of Humanities and Natural Sciences and being the only, right, at the time, right, being the only Black man in there and being awarded scholarships and fellowships and, you know, awards, but still having to fight, (laughs) still having to fight in my own university, right? Are you going to stand up for me? Are you going to stand up for me? No. And the answer is no. We're not going to stand up for you because mm-hmm. you're still, at the end of the day, a black man. And that becomes problematic because we still, it doesn't matter. It does not matter how high we get upon the rung. 
we still have to fight, Dr. Bolden. You know, and I, I, the latter part of that question as we got on is that you have a son, a black son. He's biracial. Biracial, yeah. Yeah, he is biracial. And, you know, I think about the talks that my mother gave me. What types of things do you, what types of conversations do you think that you will have with young Julian, Prince Julian, as he, as he grows up? That's an interesting question because I don't know the real answer. I mean, I know we've already started, you know, he reads avidly and we read to him avidly. And we've already started with books like Skin Like Mine and Mm. things like that to provide him the consciousness about those things. You know, we live in a predominantly black neighborhood. And like I've said, I I feel safe here because I don't feel safe in other places. And, you know, he, he's going to get that experience. That is, you know, it takes me back to that, that conversation about bias, right? Even our own unconscious, unconscious bias that happens that, you know, oftentimes we want to move away from our communities because they have been, you know, prescribed or described as nefarious places. But as you said, right. Being around folks of color, we feel safe. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We feel safe, you know, as as we see Confederate flags flying, you know, from my home state of Virginia, which I love, you know, I love so much. And I love having my 757 area code. But, you know, every time I go home now, I'm seeing big trucks and, and American flags and license plates. They say, don't tread on me. And right. I'm a little afraid. Right. I'm a, I'm a little afraid and I want to feel safe. And the safety that I feel is when I'm with my people. And I love how you say that, that Julian is going to be able to grow up in a community with people of color, but also knowing, right, also knowing that he is a biracial child and understanding all of the all of the accoutrement, as we say here in New Orleans, that comes with being a biracial child and having a, a loving mother and father and sister that gives him a tremendous amount of love. It, it is a joy to watch him, you know, through social media, whether it's a video or pictures, to see him see him growing and to see that smile of his, as well as, you know, I see the the dimples that he has like his father, <laughs> you know, as he looks, you know, he looks like a young Christian. So I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Christian, where do we go, brother? Where do we go from here? And it's interesting, you know, Martin Luther King's anthology of, of his speeches. Where do we go from here? We're mired in this time of COVID and, and unrest in our country. Where's our second chance? Oh, you opened up a, a can of worms with this one. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually really love the younger generations. You know, I teach them, but they amaze me for, for multiple reasons. But one thing I always teach them is we forget because everything in our lives are, is so serious all the time, but we forget that society is, is completely made up. We made it up as we went along and we were wrong in a lot of things. We can change those things. And I think this upheaval is, is fantastic. There are lots of changes that are on the horizon. Society can be reshaped, right? As, as long as there's enough willpower to do it, it can be done. So despite all you know, the negative things, the depressing things, the end result could be so much better. 
So much better. So much better. And I think you have the, the younger generation, they weren't trapped in the same uh, ideological boxes as, as a lot of the older generations are, that things have to be certain ways. I think they're much more imaginative about what can be and much more driven because a lot of things that the older generations have, have, have been swept out from under them. They don't have those same possibilities, right, of, of having the same house and car and things like that. And so having the, the middle-class lifestyle. So they have less to lose and more to gain. So I think you have this generational shift that's going to result in lots of differences in our societal systems. Right, right. You know, the millennials and Generation Z, if I'm correct. Generation Z, yeah. Generation Z comes after them. They are an interesting group and they see the world differently. Uh, and Very they, differently. They identify differently than you know our generation and the generation before us and how they want to view change and how they want to live their lives and we think about you know as you and I grew up you know how we had such binary identity you know identities right black white hispanic male female we're seeing so many identities we think about you know and and we didn't even until the 1970s, you know, having an identity that, that wasn't heterosexual was seen as abnormal. Right. And now what they're showing us is that we can be who the hell we want to be, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Okay, boomer, right? <laughs> you know, we can be. And so, you know, the work that I do with entrepreneurs is around innovation. And I think that as you're saying, and the hope is, is that they're going to innovate the world more so than we ever could, mm-hmm. you know? And so we, re- we rest on you, our Generation Z, our millennials, as, you know, as, as we think about what does society look like that is accepting and courageous and kind and is willing to give second and third and sometimes even fourth and fifth chances, Dr. Bolden. You know, we have a world where you and I, as we're, as we get old, as we gray, as we gray even more, <laughs> we can look at the leaders and say, we put our hope and stock in you. And actually, you have actually achieved the goals that our society, right, has the ability to live in harmony and people have the ability to thrive. Dr. Bowden, it, it is, you know, always a joy to speak with you, not only as a professional, not only as a colleague, but as a friend. I congratulate you on your new book. Out of the Red, Rutledge Press will be out on August 14th. Make sure that you go out and pick it up anywhere that you can. Leave a review. Make sure you leave a kind <laughs> review. That you leave a kind review. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, they want to get another interview with you, Dr. Bolden, how can they do that? My email is cbolden, C-B-O-L-D-E-N-Y, at loino, L-O-Y-N-O, dot E-D-U. Gotcha. Gotcha. And anyway. it's Rutgers University Press. So. Oh, Rutgers. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. make, sure, make sure we get it. Rutgers. <laughs> right. right. The gold, they're the golden something. I, I try to know my mascots, but Rutgers University Press. Any last words, any last thoughts, Dr. Bolden, on you, your journey, courage and kindness, second chances? Last thoughts. I'm going to have to think about that for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. It is It is all good. I think that you have been able to drop a tremendous amount of knowledge about what it means to show vulnerability, what it means to have second chances to come out. And I implore you all to read as you're thinking about this time. What does a second chance look like for you? 
and make sure you read, make sure you check it out. And if you want to talk to Dr. Bolden, make sure you email him. He's one of my good friends, one of those people that I admire greatly for just who he is. And he will always make you feel like you are at home. Make sure that you, uh, your, your spine is in order when he gives you a hug because <laughs> he, he's a strong dude as well. Dr. Bolden, I appreciate you for being on the What's Your Revolution show. And for you, my revolutionaries, stay with your revolution. Do not let anything hold you back. Do not let anything stop you, right? You have answered this question, what's your revolution? And now it's time for you not only to figure out what it looks like, but to actually bring it to fruition, right? If you want to make a change in your life, there are resources out there for you. You can do this. We all have the ability to make change. Don't just sit around and wait. Take hold of your revolution. I love you all. I wish you well. Take care, everyone. Peace.